it's not that any food is good or bad it's just how can you optimize the nutrient content and the anti-inflammatory content of any food while not sacrificing taste flavor it's quite magical then to see women who haven't had periods for years start seeing their cycle come Hello and welcome to A Slice in Time with me, Linda, host of With Limbs, What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, a platform for discussing topics crucial to health that are typically not taught, glossed over, or approached from the wrong angles in medicine and public discourse. As always, stay up to date by following me at With Limbs on Instagram and Twitter. Further reading and references for this episode can be found in the show notes on lindadoes.com, my website which also has a lot of other good stuff on it. And my usual disclaimer, this is a podcast for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended as individual medical advice. September is PCOS Awareness Month, which means it is the perfect time to release this episode I recorded with Dr. Neetu Bajeko. She's a personal inspiration to me as an amazing woman in medicine with over 35 years of experience in the field of obstetrics and gynecology currently working as a gynecological surgeon but with many interests and areas of expertise including medical and public education. She's also lifestyle medicine certified. I highly recommend following her socials which you can find in the episode description as well as checking out her fact sheets and website nitobajekal.com. Honestly this woman is a fountain of knowledge and I really enjoyed this discussion with her. PCOS, or PCOS as some call it, stands for Polycystic Ovary Syndrome and is a very common condition affecting people assigned female at birth. We'll be discussing what it is, how it manifests, some less commonly known symptoms that you probably did not learn about in medical school, as well as lifestyle approaches to managing it without dieting and without restriction. We will also touch on the role of soy in our diet. I just want to flag up that if you are someone who prefers written information in order to understand a concept or just a science nerd, you can find all of that in the show notes. I also want to highlight that the information discussed in relation to PCOS happens to apply to many other conditions and to anyone who wants to prevent or manage metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease as well as some cancers. And who wouldn't want that? I'm really excited for you to listen. As I said, Dr. Bajekal is a fountain of knowledge and I know that you will learn something new. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have an expert on the show. So polycystic ovary syndrome. Just to start off, it would be great to define a little bit what it is and who gets it and how common it is. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for inviting me. Polycystic ovary syndrome is actually rather common. It is a a complex genetic condition that then gets highlighted when metabolic factors and environmental factors, lifestyle factors start influencing it. There have been different studies using different criteria as to what defines PCOS. And so you have incidences and prevalence ranging from, you know, 5 to 20% even. And in certain subgroups, like people who are trying to conceive, incidence is as high as 30%. is the commonest cause for female-led subfertility. Mm-hmm. And women who are overweight or um, obese, it may be as high as 30%. So prevalence really depends upon how hard you're looking for it, because three quarters of women remain undiagnosed Mm. and first of all it is an endocrine condition and it's it's common and it has many symptoms that overlap with other things so 
there's a lot of diagnostic confusion, diagnostic difficulty. So people may find it hard to get a diagnosis over time uh, unless they see the right experts. It is quite complex. And unless you are aware of the various uh, factors that feed into uh, PCOS, it's quite possible that you remain undiagnosed for years. Hmm. There are some hallmarks of PCOS that we look for. Is somebody showing signs of oligo or anovulation where you're not producing eggs regularly? And that may manifest with irregular periods, missed cycles. Are there signs of hyperandrogenism, which means increased male hormone effects, either from clinical symptoms or from lab studies? And are there ultrasound features that are certain typical features that we see on a pelvic ultrasound scan, which suggests there are these empty egg follicles, usually more than 12 follicles. And so there was a you know, consensus in a Rotterdam conference in 2003 that came up with saying if a person fulfills two out of these three criteria, then they almost certainly have the condition polycystic ovary syndrome. Adolescent PCOS is a real issue and is often not picked up early enough mm-hmm. because, you know, young girls can often have irregular periods because they're not ovulating regularly. So that's not an unusual thing. But when uh, it is combined with a more detailed history taking where you may find that actually the person is suffering from treatment resistant acne or increased hair growth or there's a family history of metabolic syndrome or diabetes, you know, you need to take these more seriously because you you might then miss the chance of identifying polycystic ovary syndrome early on because the earlier on you pick up something, the mm-hmm. quicker you can actually address the overall issues. There are some symptoms that have been only recognized recently anxiety, depression, not being able to sleep, sleep apnea, where you have difficulty with breathing when once you've fallen asleep. So these are the symptoms that you know, doctors also may not have been aware. And so you may turn the person away when they've come a few times because you think, no, it's fine. Your ultrasound scan has just shown some multicystic ovaries uh, where it doesn't have the typical appearance of PCO. But actually, when you dig deeper, their lab studies and their clinical history is in keeping. So, you know, they do qualify to be diagnosed with adolescent uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. At the end of the day, the Rotterdam criteria are a diagnostic guide. But if someone had, for example, only one of the three criteria, but a whole host of other symptoms that were indicative of PCOS, you should still consider managing them as if it was PCOS, right? Yeah. And and you may come to the ultimate conclusion that actually this is not PCO. uh, And you also have to be aware that there are other differential diagnoses as well, you know. Mm. And certainly it's important to think because often we associate PCOS with uh, being overweight or obese. And while increased body weight is associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, you have to remember two or three women out of 10 with PCOS will actually not be overweight. Mm. And a third of those will have increased intra-abdominal fat on a CT scan. So you can't just apply a blanket rule that, you know, if it's not this, it's this and it's important to look at the entire picture before you come to a diagnosis. Yeah, so is this something that would need to be diagnosed by a gynecologist or is it, or do you think that's something that could be managed in primary care I as think well? it can be managed in primary care, 
but mm-hmm. it again depends upon the level of confidence that the primary care physician has and the level of confidence that uh, patient and their family have and you know the knowledge is important because if you don't know enough about it you may then not necessarily provide all the information many gynecologists may not necessarily have the expertise to treat PCOS and the endocrinologist may be the right person in that situation uh, so it again mm-hmm. depends upon people's special interests and how severe the condition is and at which point you're diagnosed. You know, if somebody's trying for a pregnancy, you don't want to be messing about in the primary uh, care situation. These people will need quicker attention. So I, mm-hmm. I think that's important to understand because PCOS does start early on and it may take years to be diagnosed or never be diagnosed. And it's only for the first time when somebody's trying for a baby that it gets picked up. Mm. And what about some known risk factors or causes for PCOS? There have been some studies to show that certain ethnic groups may be at higher risk. It's not really been fully borne out. What we do know is the heritable factors. Uh, There is very likely what we call a first hit, uh, where you have either a genetic issue which increases your chance of developing polycystic ovary syndrome, or there is some maternal uh, problem in utero. So we think maybe low birth weight babies are at a higher risk of having PCO later on. Uh, So fetal nutrition may uh, have a role to play. And if uh, mothers have higher androgen levels, metabolic syndrome, gestational diabetes, diabetes, all those can increase the chance of PCO later on in puberty and going onwards because um, the body has been primed. So when you then have Mm -hmm. environmental factors like insulin resistance, that can then trigger PCO. Also, we are not entirely sure what causes the actual trigger. We know insulin resistance is very important. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is that your tissues in the rest of your body, in the peripheral part of your body, become less resistant, but the uh, ovaries actually become hypersensitive. And insulin is needed to produce Mm -hmm. androgens, which then produce estrogen. It's got that pathway through the steroid pathway. And so what then happens is that you're having this high level of what is known as functional ovarian hyperandrogenism. So you may be slim, but you actually have a higher androgen state because of your ovaries responding unusually sensitive to the circulating insulin levels but at the same time this higher insulin levels that are being produced from the pancreas are not really working to push the glucose into the muscle cells and and is causing a state of insulin resistance so you can see that you know you have this double effect which really makes it quite hard and we think that that's probably it but I'm sure there are many more factors that we haven't really understood fully it's very complex but we do know that from twin studies 75% of polycystic ovary syndrome has a heritable factor probably an autosomal dominant sort of situation Mm -hmm. Uh, and mothers who have PCO themselves the children have a 25% chance of developing the condition so you know one can't ignore this but genetics should not be your destiny absolutely You want to try and see what you can do to prevent this being passed on through epigenetics and also making a difference for yourself. How do you change the environmental factors to control and manage your own condition? It's so complex in terms of causation and correlation and what's actually going on, but it's super interesting. And moving on, 
in terms of medical management, I think that's covered pretty well in medical school, but I would love to focus more on yeah. lifestyle approaches. Because a lot of people with PCOS are overweight, but not all of them, the typical advice is often to restrict calories and to cut carbohydrates. And why is this not a great idea? I think it's important to understand that diets are essentially destined to fail. Mm. Um, But what we do know, and every expert will agree, if somebody is overweight or obese, then the first line of treatment needs to be losing weight. 5 to 10% of your body weight is enough to make a difference in all those symptoms that we talked about. Um, Irregular periods, missed periods, signs of androgen excess such as facial or body hair, fertility and ovulatory uh, cycles can improve. So we know that losing that small amount of weight, which can take time, is the first line of managing people with polycystic ovarian syndrome if they have weight to lose. Mm However, women uh, who are not overweight will still have increased intra-abdominal fat, probably because of diet choices. So they may not necessarily be overweight, but they are, again, having the same higher levels of insulin resistance and circulating insulin levels and increased levels of free testosterone. So it is important to look at lifestyle as the first key way of managing all people with PCOS, whether they have weight loss or no weight loss before you start jumping on to other things. Mm -hmm. Of course, it depends upon how urgent it is. If somebody is 37 and has been trying for a pregnancy, you're not only going to suggest weight loss, you're going to suggest other things, uh, like you mentioned, you know, the metformin and inofolic acid and possibly ovarian drilling. But for the vast majority, the first line of management is actually explaining what the condition is and then explaining why this will help in improving insulin sensitivity. Because we know that polycystic ovarian syndrome is very closely linked to type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, both from the family history point of view, but also from the long-term risks. So it makes sense that what works for type 2 diabetes does work for PCOS management as well. And so there have been loads and loads of studies, but the problem is that most of the studies are quite poor quality. And what the consensus is, losing this weight will make a difference. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that is that if you are going to do a fad diet or do severe calorie restriction, yes, you will lose that weight initially, but it's not sustainable. So a year down the line, most people, when they have been put on low carb diets or very low fat diets or high protein diets, will ultimately go back to their original way. And almost all studies have shown that unless you change the mindset and unless you make it a lifestyle, any diet will fail. And that's why in my own experience and my recommendation is to do what we know is sustainable. And that is through eating a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, Focusing on not a very high fat diet if you have weight to lose, uh, but essentially a whole food plant-based diet, which means focusing on foods that are anti-inflammatory. The more you bring in these whole plant foods, which we know help with diabetes and with weight loss, will also help with PCO. Fruits, 
vegetables, green leafy vegetables, especially nitrate-rich vegetables, beet greens, beetroot, rhubarb, um, you know, rocket leaves, all these will help to reduce the inflammation and cause less oxidative stress and open up the blood vessels. Uh, beans and whole grains are particularly important because they are very rich in fiber and fiber then traps the excess estrogen, which is there circulating in the enterohepatic circulation intact whole grains and by that I mean you know steel cut oats, quinoa and brown and red rice, spelt and these ancient grains. They all contain things like you know micronutrients which are zinc and chromium. Chromium supplements are used in diabetes and there are some suggestions that chromium can help with improving insulin sensitivity. Herbs and spices, um, omega-3 fatty acids, having a handful of walnuts and flax seeds and chia seeds Beans in every form can make a big difference. Soya uh, randomized trial was there in 2018 where they looked at replacing 30% of the animal protein with 30% of soya protein. And this group of individuals actually had significant improvements in their lipid profile, in their fasting insulin levels, in their inflammatory markers. And why is anti-inflammatory food so important? So we know that eating foods that have got high in fiber are anti-inflammatory in, in their nature will help to reduce the oxidative stress. I don't know if you know about advanced glycation end products, but that is something that we are quite concerned about in PCOS. And so the more brown or burnt or barbecued a food is, the higher are the advanced glycation end products. And these are implicated in aging of the tissues, damage to the tissues, oxidative stress causing inflammation and implicated with, you know, people with cardiac problems, diabetes, um, retinal problems, but also in PCO. So women with polycystic ovarian syndrome tend to have twice the level of uh, advanced glycation end products in their bloodstream compared to those who don't have the condition. Ovaries have specific receptors almost as if they are like a dumping area for these advanced glycation end products causing even more harm to the ovaries so we produce advanced glycation end products by natural breakdown as well in our own bodies but a lot of it comes from external sources from the foods we eat um, and from bisphenol and you know those plastics that we use in microwaves but with advanced glycation end products you will find that in much higher levels such as cheese and butter and fried chicken or barbecued steaks the advanced glycation end products are much lower in plant foods and for example raw nuts will have 30 times less uh, AGEs than roasted nuts but Mm. still boiled chicken actually has more advanced glycation end products than fried potatoes but fried potatoes are not good for you but advanced glycation end products is something that we need to be thinking about so again by introducing whole grains that will actually suck out the advanced glycation end products because they're very low in it as well but they're good ways of getting rid of these products by including these into your diet so simple things you know really Mm. just want people to bring color into their foods more grains into their foods more beans into their foods and herbs and spices are particularly important because remember that spices like turmeric and and ginger garlic and herbs all increase the antioxidant power of any dish by about 200 percent they're one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory substances we can find and taking a supplement is not really the answer you're always better to get it in the whole food 
how do you typically tell a patient that sat in clinic, for example, where to start and how to apply this knowledge that we know from research into their actual diet with some practical tips? I encourage my patients to start with something very simple, maybe with breakfast, you know. If they're having breakfast cereals, which are high in advanced glycation end products, I'll ask them to swap over to having steel-cut oats. If they're having dairy milk, I'll suggest that they add soya milk. I would ask them to add a tablespoon of chia seeds, that a milled or flaxseed powder, a handful of walnuts, because this will give them their omega-3s, which we know helps with PCO. So you just take breakfast initially, because it can feel quite overwhelming for people. Some people are willing to make that big jump straight away. Others will need time. And that's important because the gut microbiome has been shown to be playing a role in PCOS as well. And it takes about three months to bring in all the good bacteria and get rid of the ones that are not so helpful. And so suddenly changing may leave you feeling bloated or tired. And you then start blaming the foods that you're eating. I can't eat beans because I feel bloated rather than actually the bacteria that are there in our gut are not able to handle that kind of fiber-rich food. So I often tell uh, my patients, start with breakfast, then you ramp it up. And if you're eating two fruits in a day, make it three. If you're eating one vegetable a day, make it two. And you slowly increase it over time. And similarly, if you're not able to tolerate beans, make sure that they're cooked thoroughly and have a small portion of maybe baked beans initially. Then, you know, try a chickpea curry and start with a tablespoon and slowly increase it. Start thinking of putting some fresh herbs or dried herbs or spices in your food. Uh, maybe have a salad with a dollop of hummus instead of having fried chicken on it, you know? Yeah. So little changes like that doesn't feel so threatening and it's more doable and I often tell people if you want to do a deep dive and actually make the big change in three weeks you will start seeing the difference some of my patients are very determined and it's quite magical then to see women who haven't had periods for years start seeing their cycle come Mm -hmm. or if they've had irregular periods they find it's starting to become regular while for others it may be a more gradual process allowing the body to get used to it so you just have to tailor it differently there was a study called the broad study in New Zealand they found that when they gave advice to people on a whole food plant-based way of eating and then sent them away Even when they followed them up a year later and two years later, people enjoyed it so much that they didn't actually come off it and they consistently continue to lose weight. Uh, While you know most studies will show that any diet that anybody's put on, most people tend to put weight back on. Absolutely. That is important to understand that this has to be sustainable. This has to be for as long as you live, really, you want to do this. Why? Because there are some long-term issues with PCOS. It's not something that just goes away short term you may have acne and increased hair growth but also a more medium term where you might have difficulty falling pregnant or gestational diabetes and then later on we know the only group of people who get endometrial cancer under the age of 35 are people with polycystic ovarian syndrome people will be at a higher risk of endometrial cancer often from the lining not shedding there'll be these higher estrogen levels and that's where soya comes in it's a plant estrogen throws the other estrogen out and so that's why it's so good the other thing i just wanted to say was that um, you know cardiac issues and ovarian cancer endometrial cancer type 2 diabetes these are all real risks that can surface later on 
I think some of the most important points to highlight there is that, like you say, it needs to be sustainable and a lifestyle change. Some people are happy to do it all at once, but if that's not the case, there's yeah. no point in going for it all in only to stop it all. It's better to start it slowly, like you say, for example, with breakfast or one meal at a time. Yeah, and it's crowding out, you know, Linda? It's basically crowding out what's uh, on your plate, not thinking so much, oh, I can't have a donut yeah. or I can't have piece of cake all you have to think is every time i eat a donut i'm missing the chance of eating a bowl of mango uh, with some blueberries and dark chocolate drizzled on it every time i have an omelet i'm missing the chance of having tofu scramble instead of having a piece of fish i would like to have a big bowl of dal Mm. it's not that any food is good or bad it's just how can you optimize the nutrient content and the anti-inflammatory content while not sacrificing taste flavor you know Mm. so it's just crowding out the foods over time and bringing in more color at your pace depending upon the urgency I think is important to understand and that is not all or none yeah and different people have different ways that work for them and we shouldn't be so fixated on it has to be my Mm. way or no other way absolutely we both know that a whole food plant-based diet is so amazing in that it offers so many different things and it's not restrictive at all as opposed to the typical calorie restriction, carbohydrate cutting thing. And it's just, it's a diet of abundance and it becomes a joy to eat that way. Exactly. You're not missing out on anything. Um, so I think that's really important. And yes, yeah, when we mentioned before as well how PCOS is linked to a lot of psychiatric conditions and anxiety and depression and so on I know as well when I was looking at the research a lot of people have bulimia and binge eating disorder in particular so that's another reason why restricting your calorie intake would not be very good because that can typically trigger eating disorder patterns and so on so it's really about yeah making sure that you eat an abundance of nourishing foods absolutely I'm very against dieting actually I don't think it Mm. works I don't think anybody needs to be told that they are overweight or obese. I think what you need to do is look at it from the medical point of view and what we can do as professionals. How can we help this particular person to understand that they don't need to restrict calories while enjoying food? Mm -hmm. And how can you maximize the nutrients in your diet with no compromise on taste or flavor or calorie counting? And that is a whole food plant-based way of eating. There are 20,000 plant species to choose from. It's a joy to eat. Almost anybody who adopts this way of eating looks back and thinks, wow, why did nobody tell me? And you know, typically women are scared to eat potatoes and whole grains and there's a lot of confusion out there. And what's important to understand is that we can't lump carbohydrates all in the same Mm -hmm. group. You know, these are complex carbohydrates. When you eat the right foods, uh, you will be able to enjoy the food keeps you full for longer so you're not then constantly snacking and you will see the change yourself and because there's so much of choice Mm. you don't feel deprived at all no you may want to have on a celebrity occasion uh, i don't know a vegan pizza yeah they are not ideal for managing the condition they are transition foods or occasional treat foods The more whole plant foods you introduce into your diet, the more benefits you'll reap. And this is not just with polycystic ovary syndrome. There's no separate diet. Uh, So if I was to talk to you about menopause or dementia or lifestyle cancer prevention, 
essentially it is the same way of eating there is no different ways of eating and you can keep it very simple yeah that's the beauty and simplicity of it that it's the optimal diet for anyone yeah it's really very simple you can go as expensive as you want or as basic as you want i always tell my students that and my patients that try and shop towards the end of the day you know if you're going to a supermarket buy things in season shop locally mm. go to ethnic shops where you can get beans and whole grains herbs and spices in bulk and so when you do that you will then be really surprised that you're spending your money only on the fresh produce but you've got this bulk items that mm. you can always whip up a meal and batch cooking does make a big difference but some some patients will need a bit of hand holding and so they will need referral uh, for uh, you know medical nutrition therapy which means they may have to see a dietitian or a nutritionist who actually understands this way of eating because the usual rhetoric is um, go mm-hmm. on a on a high protein diet or go on a high fat diet or a low carb diet uh, and that then basically becomes a failure in a few months and and then the person gets really frustrated and they don't know where to go. We're mainly focusing on diet just now in this episode of course, but just quickly, is there anything else that people with PCOS should keep in mind in terms of lifestyle? People often think they, they often will say, "Oh, I don't exercise." Well, diet is, you know, what you eat is probably the most important, but in PCO, you know, exercise, sleep, stress, all these things you know all the pillars of lifestyle medicine play a big role you know smoking and alcohol do make mm-hmm. the yeah. receptors uh, and advance they increase and advance and glycation end products so it's important to understand that these are all interlinked and you can't just throw them all out and just focus on one aspect but you do have to focus mm-hmm. on the others as well In terms of the carbohydrate and insulin resistance model, a lot of people still are under the impression that it's carbohydrates that drive insulin resistance. And when you go on a low carbohydrate diet or cut out carbs, you won't get your insulin spikes. Therefore, you stop the insulin resistance, which is not the case. Yes. So I was wondering if you could just clarify that for anyone that's not come across that concept yet. And also, we already spoke about how, you know, complex carbohydrates are the ones that matter and the ones that are better. But should people be thinking about low glycemic index carbohydrates as well, or does that not matter as much? So um, the important thing to understand is that whether it is insulin resistance or type 2 diabetes or PCOS, we know that what stops the glucose from entering the cells is intracellular fat. So if you imagine a room as a cell and uh, the room has a door with a key to it and the key is insulin and you have a keyhole, if you try and put this insulin key into this hole to open the door to allow the glucose that you've just had a banana, you want to allow this glucose to come in, if that keyhole is blocked with fat, the insulin can't do its job. Which is why we know just losing that little bit of weight from any means helps to melt some of that fat away. But as you continue to have eggs for breakfast instead of porridge oats, the saturated fats, intracellular fats keep increasing within the cell and in the keyhole. Essentially, your carbohydrate is not the driver for insulin resistance. It is the fat that is blocking that keyhole and the fat within the cell. So until you start getting rid of that saturated fat or trans fats, then only will you start seeing the difference. Now, people 
will ask, but why do you advocate a low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet uh, for some people in polycystic ovary mm-hmm. syndrome? And that is because that fat can behave in the similar way. So what you don't want is to be adding oils uh, in large amounts to your diet because, first of all, they're empty calories. They don't have fiber. And remember, fiber is what will trap most of these excess waste and throw it out of your system, including the estrogen. So uh, when you have foods that have got very low uh, nutritional value, don't have fiber, have high calories, you are then displacing something that is much more nutrient uh, dense and calorie light in people who are trying to lose weight. Mm. Avocados and walnuts and flaxseed are fine, but you know, having uh, deep fried potatoes or adding a whole lot of oil onto your salads or cooking in oil uh, is probably not going to be such a good idea because of the advanced glycation end products that are being produced. So it's just understanding the what swaps you're making yeah. because oil is not going to make food more tasty. It's just a medium to you know, cook your stuff so you can roast your spices and then add a splash of water, which behaves just like as if you're using Mm. oil. And there are so many sites that teach you how to do oil-free cooking as well. It may be one aspect that you can pick up. On the other hand, it may be that you don't need to do that and you just focus on bringing in more color and more complex Mm. carbohydrates into your diet. But uh, understanding that intracellular fat is probably one of the drivers for insulin resistance is quite important because people often will say, oh, I can't have the fruit because it's got sugar in it and that's going to give me diabetes. Mm. When we know that studies have shown that, you know, when they have eaten up to 20 fruits, they have a lower risk of diabetes and the diabetics who eat a lot of fruit have the lowest risk of one of the terrible complications that they can have, you know, amputation, kidney uh, failure, uh, blindness, all these things are quite serious complications of type 2 diabetes. So uh, every time you are then choosing foods that are much higher in fat over something that you think is unhealthy when it's a plant food you're doing yourself a disservice is what i'm Mm. trying to say so you know choosing an omelet or a piece of red meat regularly over fruits and sweet potatoes and whole grains and beans if you have that genetic background already there Mm. then these provide the triggers for it Um, so you know carbohydrates are not the enemy but it's important to understand what you mean by carbohydrates. So refined carbohydrates, white rice, white bread can be just as harmful. Um, And so ultra processed foods are very high in advanced glycation end products, but also in these very simple sugars, which can hurt your body and trigger the mTOR pathway and aging and damage to cells. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be indulging in these simple, high glycemic foods, On the other hand, you want to be indulging more in where you have the low, slow release of sugars because of the fiber that traps it. So that's the difference between fruits and fruit juices. Fruits have all fiber. And so it's a slow release compared to fruit juice. When you suddenly glug down a glass of apple juice, you can't eat three apples in in five minutes. Understand Mm -hmm. there's a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that because that's just not really taught the whole carbohydrate not really driving insulin resistance because I think that a lot of people associate any carbohydrates with insulin resistance, which is 
just not the case at all and we're really doing patients a disservice and just the general public by vilifying carbohydrates in that way when it's just really not the not the case and it's important to understand that what happens is when you're not eating anything that has any sugar in it so for example if you're just having a, a breakfast with eggs and spinach for example yes often on a paleo diet mm. then yes if you have a blood test your blood sugar is not going to be raised mm. so you think you're winning but what happens is when you look at the long term, three months down the line, six months down the line, look at all your inflammatory markers. Basically, what ends up happening is that you're continuing to accumulate that internal fat in the cells. Mm. All you need to do is eat a banana or a baked potato and your sugar levels go sky high because that keyhole that I explained to you, which is blocked with the fat, it doesn't allow the insulin to do its job and so the glucose can't come in and they say aha it is the banana that is exactly and that is such a simple way of thinking about it i don't like to make any food good or bad you know you want to eat that piece of cake do it but if you did it every single day you're going to realize that you're having all the wrong triggers that make the condition much worse so mm erring on the side of whole plant foods, um, you know, eating really in abundance and, and trying to keep the fruit juices, the oils, the ultra processed foods and the animal foods either never if you're strong willed enough or as very rare occasional trees because moderation doesn't really work. You know, people often think they're doing moderation. Yeah. As anyone that's tried it knows. <laughs> Moderation just doesn't work for most people, yeah. in me included. So I think what is important to understand is that once you switch your brain into thinking, this is a lifestyle, this is, I'm going to enjoy this, I'm not going to count mm. calories, I'm going to have a big bowl of brown spaghetti with a huge marinara sauce with beans thrown in and celery and tomatoes and spices and a big green leafy salad with beetroot next to it and a bowl of mango afterwards. After that, if you still want to have your vegan magnum or, or something, you're probably not going to want to eat mm. you know, two of them. You might eat one or you might share it with somebody. What I'm trying to say is that once you understand that you can actually eat to satiety, that is really key. And then you have more energy. And when you have more energy, you feel good. And when you feel good, the endorphins get raised. So then you do exercise and that will help to normalize your hormones as well. And then again, you have more release of endorphins. So you make better choices. So then the chocolate donut is not as exciting as your bowl of berries. So mm. sometimes, yes, you know, people are young, they want to indulge in these things. I can understand it. But if you don't understand the basic principle of what causes PCO and how you can actually help yourself long term, then you're doing yourself a disservice. And also mental health improves when you're eating the right anti-inflammatory mm. foods. And as a result, you will sleep better. Having like a, a sleep pattern and routine so your melatonin levels start rising will reduce your stress levels. And we know cortisol and all the stress hormones make PCO worse. So... Everything is interlinked, you can see, but yeah. it's probably the overarching umbrella there is nutrition. Mm. We could talk about PCOS for ages, but it's, <laughs> it's great that also a lot of the stuff applies to just in general, the healthy lifestyle. And yeah. it's about feeling good and it's about empowering yourself with the information to know when you make a choice yeah you know like you say like if you want to make a choice and have chocolate or yeah. a cake 
you can, but it's knowing, you know, what good other foods do you as well. And not putting any guilt onto it. That's mm. what I find quite hard when I see some of my friends and they say, oh, I shouldn't really be having this chocolate cake. And I think in my head, but why not? You want mm. to eat it, eat it now, enjoy it, savor it, and then move on. Mm. I think guilt is a huge factor that plays into people's psyche probably from all this confusion that's bounding and that really needs to be addressed as well absolutely and yeah hopefully someone listening has had some of their guilt (laughs) taken away yes absolutely no guilt to be associated with food just really thinking how do I make this plate more whole food so if you look at an olive it's whole food olive oil isn't whole food Uh, if you look at a coconut entire coconut is great, it's got fiber in it, but coconut milk, coconut oils, not great for us. Mm. You know, sometimes you have to use those things. I'm not saying that you don't. All I'm saying is that if you can move more towards eating whole plant foods most of the time, then you are going to be on a winner because all the inflammatory factors will reduce. So your androgen levels will reduce. So you'll find that your skin clears up more. It's not for everybody, but certainly a lot of people will find that when their periods get regulated, when their skin clears up, they feel very motivated because it can be very depressing when you have friends who seem to be eating everything under the sun and they either don't put on the weight or they have no side effects. Uh, It feels, life feels very unfair. I did want to also talk about soya a bit. We've already established that it's helpful in PCOS. Mm -hmm. But when I talk about soya in general to most people, I'm met by a lot of resistance, especially from men, but also others. Because I think mainly it's the association with soya and the phytoestrogens, so the plant estrogens that they have. And I know you're quite passionate as well about advocating for soya and it would be great to just dispel some of the myths. Yes, Linda. I mean, you know, you absolutely don't need to eat soya if you don't want to. If you're allergic to it or you don't like it, that's fine. But you're going to really miss out on a very healthy plant product. Basically, what is it? It's a bean that was discovered in in China about 3,000 years ago, and there have been about 20,000 studies. And almost all of them, except the one or two initial animal models, have been remarkably positive. Why? Because soya has got this unique quality. It is a complete plant protein. All plants have all the nine essential amino acids, but soya has it in the right proportion that is similar to, say, egg white. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so people who worry about their protein intake can increase their protein intake by eating soya. You also have a lot of fiber in it. It has micronutrients, it has vitamins, uh, and it has something called phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are found in many, many plant compounds. You can have isoflavones and lignans, and there are so many others. Isoflavones are found in chickpeas and in soya beans and and lignans are found in flax seeds. And so we know that studies have shown that these can help reduce the incidence of prostate cancer and breast cancer. Even on people who have breast cancer, studies have shown that eating soya regularly reduces their mortality rate. And uh, I think there was the American Journal of Nutrition that looked at something like 20, 30 studies where um, there was a 27% reduction in prostate cancer and other Mm. cancers too. 
So we know that the phytoestrogens is what causes the anxiety in, in the public. But phytoestrogens have this unique quality, unlike estrogen that is made in our body fat and the estrogen that we get in through uh, meat and, and uh, dairy, etc. They work on both the alpha and the beta receptors, while with soya, phytoestrogens, they work primarily on the beta receptor. So it has this effect where it can mimic estrogen in some tissues and pretend to be an estrogen blocker in some tissues. So that's how it works. So it helps with hot flushes by mimicking estrogen. It helps with bone strength and prevents osteoporosis by mimicking estrogen. But if you have a lot of estrogen floating around in your body and in the breast, it will actually block it in the breast and in the prostate. So we know that by having this, what is known as a selective estrogen receptor modulation, what it does is it works very, very smartly. The reason why soya has different effects on different people is that we know that it also depends upon when you start it and what your overall diet is. So the earlier you start it, so as a child, if you're eating at least one portion of soya, and that's what we recommend, one portion is one handful. So a small cup of soya milk or a handful of tofu as a child uh, is what you need. And the earlier you start it, the lower is the long-term risk of breast cancer and prostate cancer. Then you have also a diet. So we know that Southeast Asians who eat a lot of plants or people who are on a vegetarian diet tend to have better conversion to the more active forms of uh, the soya because they have these right gut bacteria that break it down. Again, depending upon if your diet is very animal protein heavy, you may not see the benefits for hot flushes or for general benefits as compared to somebody who's on a plant-based diet. And so age is important when you start it, how much of soya you're eating. So, you know, we recommend that, you know, adults should include at least two portions of soya in their diet. If you have thyroid problems, it's not an issue really for most people. All you have to do is take your soya at a different time from your thyroid tablets and have your thyroid checked like all people would do once or twice a year. So, you know, it's the phytoestrogens that give people that nervousness because there was one animal model study which suggested that it might increase breast cancer risk. But all studies subsequently have shown that it actually reduced the risk because of the way it affects the microvasculature in these breast cancer tissues. And it, it actually lowers the risk of not just breast and prostate, but also colon cancer and liver cancer and things like that. And because it doesn't have cholesterol, it also helps with improving lipid profile it improves insulin resistance and it helps with weight loss and fermented versions are also very good and they're protective for the heart so i tend to tell my patients if you don't want to eat soya that's fine if you're allergic to soya that's fine but don't give it a bad name because actually it has got a lot of benefits and you will see the benefits yourself and i would suggest eating more of the minimally processed soya so edamame beans miso natto tempeh tofu soya milk these are better versions than having a soya sausage uh, and for those who are worried about the environmental impact remember that most of the soya that is produced around the world is for feeding animals that are going for for factory farming Exactly. So corn and soya is what clears the rainforest, while only 6 to 7% of the soya that is produced is for human consumption. Certainly in the UK, it's not even GMO produced, but that's not such an important thing, really. You just have to know that most of that soya is not produced in rainforests, and 
70, 60, 70, 80, 90% of the soya is used for biofuel and for animal agriculture. So if you have environmental concerns, then it is certainly sustainable and it has all these health benefits. Uh, and certainly for you know things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, we know that, as I said, there was a randomized trial. Certainly soya is good in endometriosis as well. And we find lower rates of severe endometriosis in this situation. I have a, a fact sheet on my website, which may be quite helpful to dispel myths mm-hmm. because, it, it, you know, people do do themselves a disservice by avoiding it, especially women who have had breast cancer, they should be eating it. And people who have, you know, the BRCA gene positive, the more plant-based foods they eat, they'll find that they lower their risk of cancers as well. Great. Thank you so much for that. So it's definitely one to include, and especially in the minimally processed forms in the diet. So in summary, Linda, I just want to say that uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome is a complex condition with a genetic background where factors that may have occurred when you were inside your mother's womb would then be triggered by environmental factors and that diabetes and metabolic syndrome and heart disease and endometrial cancers are long-term risks, but the initial factors that people manifest with is usually irregular menstrual periods, uh, signs of uh, androgen excess, which is like increased facial body hair, acne or hair loss, but depression and anxiety and sleep apnea are often symptoms and there are ways of diagnosing it and there is a lot of help, especially by adopting lifestyle changes, including trying to include more whole plant foods. Perfect. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'll also be sure to link your fact sheets, one on PCOS in general and one on nutrition, which will summarize what we spoke about and some more things as well about supplements and so on on there too. Because this podcast is called What I Didn't Learn in Medical School, what is one thing that you wish there was more of a focus on in medical education for future healthcare professionals? I think a focus on lifestyle and nutrition. I do feel that it took me years. I love my speciality. I found it thrilling 35 years ago. I still find it thrilling. But what I realized is that what I didn't have in my toolbox was using lifestyle alongside all the surgical medications skills that I have. And I would definitely say that nutrition and lifestyle medicine should be taught every year in a module starting from first year all the way to to the fifth year Mm. and later yeah in the code blue documentary when they have that university i think it was in south carolina or it was in the u.s somewhere and i just got so jealous how they had like cooking classes throughout their entire degree i was like this is how it should be it should be like this for everyone exactly it just looks amazing it is absolutely amazing and you know it's better late than never and you are in medical school so it's really good that you have already been exposed to it i wish i had known mm. this 35 years ago and i had to come upon it myself and many of my patients had to come up on it themselves and i think that's wrong you know informed mm. consent and informed choices are only possible when you have all the information to hand and i think that that's where we are doing a big disservice uh, absolutely to people that we are trying to make better yes Okay, I think that's it for the interview. There's a lot of areas. I mean, we haven't even touched so many aspects mm. of it. It's impossible, you know. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you so much. Yeah, okay, bye. bye. Now.
and that's our episode thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed it and that you learned something new again please do check out the show notes which will have lots more information and lots of references for all of you science nerds and dr nita's social media and website details please make sure to follow me at Whitlimps on instagram and twitter and also do share the podcast around with anyone that you think might enjoy it. I cover lots of different topics and I'm always open to feedback, whether good or bad. And if there is anything in particular that you would want me to cover, you have any speakers in mind, do get in touch with me. Other than that, I hope you have a lovely rest of the day and I hope to have you back as a listener on the show. Bye!